Welcome to Tactically Acquired. Our goal is to document military-connected living history in a fun and easy environment. We will capture the stories of our active duty, guard, reservists, veterans, ROTC, and their families, sharing their stories, adventures, and journeys across the military life cycle. The podcast is for anyone interested in joining the military, has been part of the military, or wishes to learn more about military life. In addition, we want to bridge the growing military-civilian divide through education. This is unfiltered, meaning we'll go over the good, the bad, and yes, maybe even the ugly of being a military-connected individual. I'm your host, Rusty Martis, a retired Air Force Mustang and OEF veteran, and I run the Veterans Resource Station at North Kentucky University. Well, our special guest today on Tackley Acquired happens to be our producer. Professor Kevin Eagles. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for finally having me. <laughs> it's great to have you. And it's exciting to talk a little bit about this next several episodes that we're going to be doing. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, how we kind of set up these next three episodes on Tackley Acquired? Right. So uh, where to start? Uh, these next three episodes are going to be the oral history of my father, Tom Eagles. Shoot by... <laughs> I'm already bad at this. For no, that, so. you're awesome. <laughs> right. Uh, so in uh, October of 2015, my father gave an oral history, uh, seven months before he passed. I found uh, these recordings in his desk and uh, have been wondering what to do with them uh, for for the last seven years. And uh, we've kind of been holding it in our back pocket to, to, to finally uh, air an episode about it. Yeah, what's really cool about it is, I mean, this is the oral history that was done from your father who spent how many years in the Marine Corps? So he was 30 years um, in the Navy as a corpsman for the Marines. Awesome. Awesome. And he uh, was asked or invited to do this oral broadcast through a museum. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, the... Uh, Upcountry History Museum in Greenville, South Carolina, where they lived. Oh, awesome. And so he did this. And like you said, unfortunately, he passed not too far after that. And so this is a, a great opportunity to showcase everything he went through. And he has an incredible history. Yeah. I mean, imagine 30 years of being in. But right. what era was he during this, his service time? He was in Vietnam, if I remember correctly, uh, for seven, almost eight years, uh, he left in 72. Well, I'm sorry, he left in 73, in January or February of 73. So he would have been there from 66 to 73 or 65. Right. And we don't want to do any spoilers here because, like I said, the history is just amazing. Everything he went through, everything he helped produce and create it as part of being the Marine Corps. But uh, talk a little bit about um, just him as a dad from your perspective and kind of growing up in that environment around the Marine Corps. Mm. Well, so yeah, we don't want to give away spoilers, right. but my father was a brother of mercy with the Catholic Church, right? So he was a Catholic monk. And then he went into the service and he became a corpsman. My father always had our spiritual and our physical well-being mm-hmm. uh, laid out for us, right? He was our medical officer and he was our spiritual advisor as well. You know, growing up, we had both of those aspects of his life would constantly find their way into ours. And I don't, I don't recall the question. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect. I think um, what's exciting, again, is that we have the opportunity to showcase, again, living history 
of a 30-year Marine. Oh, right. Yeah, so that was the thing, too, and that's the importance of why I wanted to air this, because one of the things that my father um, wanted to do um, but never got around to doing was to to write about his own life. Mm-hmm. And part of that, the reason he didn't, was that he was too too humble, right? <clears throat> so when my father passed, we had thought that he had passed with a, a number of secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, in his desk, we had found these recordings, as well as several other tidbits. And if I can, one of the tidbits was... My father would always get into an argument with my mother because when I was born, so I was born uh, in August of 1972, uh, out, just outside of Saigon in Vietnam during the war. And my father and mother had saved up money. Uh, they didn't know the gender that I would be, so they had saved up a bunch of money for when I arrived. And a week before I was born, my father told my mother like I lost that he had lost all of the money that they had saved up gambling. Wow. And that was the argument for 40 years of my life, wow. right? And when I opened up the drawer, I'm going to try not to get choked up when I say this. When I opened up the drawer, among everything else was that you know, going back to when my father was a monk, he was actually a monk uh, and a brother of mercy in Vietnam, and he built churches. And that was one of his little side things that he would do in the service. And we had found uh, a, a stack of pictures, all dated a week before I was born. Um, and he is there with um, a group of Vietnamese nationals and a couple of other American soldiers, and they were building a Catholic church. And my father the church had run out of money in the community, the village that they were building it for had run out of money. So my dad stole all of the money that was saved for me to, to make sure that that church got built. Wow. And so after I passed, so that my dad never wanted to, to tell, you know, my mom that, you know, what he had done for whatever reason. And, uh, he finally let us know what had really happened, you know, after he had, after he was gone. Wow. And I've, you know, finding all those pictures afterwards, was really, uh, you know, heart-wrenching. Absolutely. Man. Yeah, and, and that's what's so amazing about his story. And like every history story, so one of the reasons we do this podcast is to get those oral histories out. Our primary focus is around military, military-connected and veterans, but all the story resonates throughout, you know, our history of, as America. And this is key, uh, what he brought from Vietnam, but what he also, I'm trying to give away spoilers neither, no, right, right. but what he brought to the military that then became commonplace mm. in the civilian world. Mm. So it's a must listen podcast. I hope everybody enjoys it. And Professor Eagles, I greatly appreciate you sharing this with us. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Staff Sergeant Jason Myrtle. I'm the recruiter for the Kentucky Army National Guard here at NKU and in Northern Kentucky. The Kentucky Army National Guard offers a 100% scholarship to any public university in Kentucky, along with a possible $20,000 enlistment bonus, additional income while attending college, and numerous other benefits. If you have any interest or questions, my contact information will be in the show notes. Go Guard. Hey, this is Katie Womble. I'm talking with Thomas Eagles for our Vietnam Oral History Project, um, and his wife Karen and both Don Kuntz are here. Today is October 28th, 2015. 
So when and where were you born? Buffalo, New York in 1944. And how would you describe your childhood? Country boy. Uh, grandpa, grandpa had a sawmill. Uh, we had a boat livery. Grew up out in the country. Grew up along the Oak Orchard River fishing and getting in trouble. <laughs> so a lot of outdoors yeah. stuff growing up. Um, did you, were you a Boy Scout or anything oh, yeah, like that? Oh yeah, yeah, Boy Scout. So what did that teach you? Taught me how to live in, you know, of course we always were hunting and out in the woods and running around with our BB guns, which are illegal now, but we all have BB guns and shot up every garbage can in town. Uh, Grandma used to give me help because we used to use the garbage cans for lids and all had dents in it, you know. So she didn't have a single garbage can without a dent? Yeah. I had a few dents in me for that. Uh, it was a good it was a good childhood. Um went to school in Buffalo. We lived out in the country actually, but Buffalo was a my aunt was a, a principal at a Catholic school, so I went there for free. Oh. Uh grammar school and then high school. My uncle was the principal and that was good and bad. Because you couldn't get away with anything, you know. Yeah. Uh got through high school, uh started thinking about religious life, you know. Grew up as an altar boy, and all all, the, all that tends to. But uh, uh, I, I I read an article in the Knights of Columbus magazine about these brothers, and they were pretty cool. How uh, that was kind of neat help of people. So uh, I joined the brothers right out of high school. When the day I left high school, I joined the brothers and uh, spent two and a half years there. Uh, went got an LPN license, practical nurse, LPN license. We did geriatric terminal nursing, taking care of old people that were come there. Now they call it hospital, but it was called geriatric terminal. Did that, and then in 1962, the Bishop of Saigon visited us and asked to send some of our brothers out to Saigon City to take care of the old Vietnamese and French priests with the ultimate goal of gathering them all together in one place, in other words, developing a hospital or a hospice. We got there, uh, we we ran around town on Vespa motor scooters and went from rectory to rectory. And I, I took care of about four priests. I'd see them three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Wash them, shave them, all that. So uh, you would go to them? Yeah. And uh, at that time, it was 1963, there was not a lot of American involvement and there was not a lot of chaplains. We were right downtown, not too far from the Vietnamese Navy Yard and the Vietnamese Marine advisor headquarters. So they didn't have a chaplain and they'd come by and see us. And these guys would come by that uh, I thought, I thought they were Marines because they had Marine uniform on, but and with Marine stripes on their collars in a medical insignia. So I thought those were Marines. They just really didn't get into it, you know. And uh, they were, um, it's called Comshaw, I don't know that, but uh, they would remove medical supplies to help us out. It was grand theft. They did what? Sorry. <laughs> They'd bring us medical supplies that we needed okay. to help. You know, so they were pretty cool guys. I liked it. And then um, did they bring them for free to y'all? Oh, y'all oh no, no, they free. So then we got to the point where um, they would they would almost come every week. And one of the things they'd ask me for advice, and I, I mean, I had these robes on, and I knew a little bit, but not much. And I didn't, you know, so that, and I couldn't help them, you know. I mean, they'd say, "Well, I'm doing this or I'm doing that," and you know, I had no that any any deep theological training or anything. And then, um, so they were speaking. They were seeking spiritual guidance. Yeah, yeah. 
And I wasn't really trained for that. I, mean, I was just a young 20 year old kid. Yeah, you were, is, is there such a thing as a novice? Yeah, I was a novice. Mm -hmm. um, so then, um, well, uh, Brother Superior said, well, you're not going to go back to the States and get an RN. I wanted to go back to the States after a year. He said, I'm going to keep you here because you can fix the motor screws, you can fix the plumbing, you can cook. You're a jack of all trades. Uh, so my Irish pride said, you know, I don't like that. So I quit. It wasn't that. That's a, basically I quit. You know, went back to the states, uh, got out, um, had a cigar box full of holy cards, and a black suit, and a white shirt, and a tie, and no money. So I came home. My folks were glad to have me, but uh, I went. I, I wanted to go. I tried to join the Marines. So before we get into that, this way. What did your parents do for a living? My dad was a flight inspector at Bell Aircraft. Okay. Um, grandpa had the sawmill. Grandma cooked and you know took care of the house and my mom. My mom at that time, my mother and father had divorced at that time, so I really wasn't happy to be home. So I tried to join the Marines. Went down to the Marine Corps and says, you know, I want to join. The oh yeah, we're glad to have you. Okay, and he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a medic. He said, oh, we don't do that. I said, yes, you do. You know, I mean, I argue with this gunny, you know, young kid. Oh, yes, I just left Vietnam. These guys were Marines. Those were not Marines. Those they were. He said, no, they weren't. Those were sailors in Marine uniform. Oh, okay. So instead of saying he could make me a corps man, which, you know, in the corps, he took me down the hall and put me in the, you know, got me in the Navy and hospital corps. Mm -hmm. So joined the Navy, uh, went off to boot camp and uh, went to boot camp. And I drove my company commander wild because boot camp was fun. For you? Yeah. Or for everyone? No, for me. <laughs> I mean, I could look at women, eat meat, talk to somebody, you know. This is great, you know. The day I graduated, uh, Mr. Owens got called me and he says, Eagles, he says, you graduated. He says, you know, I won't, can't quote verbatim what he said, but, you know, where the hell did you come from, you know, I told him. He said, he's a uh, Baptist, very good man, but he says, uh, what, what were you like? He said, I said, I never want one of you bastards in my company. He said, I couldn't get to you. I, mean, I was having fun. You know, and he, they'd you know, brace you up, 10 general orders and such. Oh, you know, that's easy. I've been told that basic was a time when people were just pushed beyond their limits. And you know, in those days, yeah, that, it wasn't. Not that I could see. You know, I'd just been through. So how long were you in BASIC, and where were you? Uh, Great Lakes, Illinois, and I think it was 13 weeks back then. Mm. And from there, I went right to hospital corps school, and then I uh, went to, uh, let's see, I went to Naval Hospital Portsmouth, Virginia, did uh, what they call a ward coolie. Worked on the wards, you know, bedpans and all that. Didn't like that too much, you know. So, uh, uh Got in a few, I got in trouble there. How uh, did you get in trouble? The, um, there's a very famous Marine general by the name of Chesty Puller. He was a patient. And uh, I was on the wards, and one of the wards was SOQ, uh, Sick Officers Quarters. Well, they literally used to call it Sick Old Queers. <laughs> so uh, there's a senator named Clinton Pell. Okay, to see the general. And I went down to get him. He says, uh, Eagles, what is, I have my name tag. He says, Eagles, what does SOQ mean? I said, Sicko Queers. <laughs> Dumb. And of course, he told the general, and the general called me the next day. He says, Eagles, 
you think, oh, no, sir, he says, well, next time don't ever do that because you're going to be in, he says, if I told the nurse, you'd be in deep trouble. So I won't do it. So he says, I think you better get out of here. So there was an admiral there by the name of Macklin, who was the CEO of the hospital. And he had been in, in World War II with the Marines. And he said, he went saw Admiral Macklin. Admiral Macklin says, you're leaving tomorrow. He says, we think you better go to the Marines. So off I went to Quantico on what they used to call a draft. So I went to Quantico and got to Quantico. And I was beginning of my Marine, Marine Navy career. So then you were in the Marine proper? Well, yes and no. I mean, you're in the Navy, but assigned to the Marines. In those days when you were assigned to the Marines, you had to wear their uniform, have their grooming standards, do their their physical fitness stuff, learn amalgamate into them. So I did that uh, for some time, and then they found out that I'd been to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. This one gunny sergeant says, you know, you've been to Vietnam. I mean, not much, but I've been there, and I spoke a little language. He says, but he could probably use you. So off I went to a whole bunch of schools. Jump school, scuba school, advanced special forces medical training, and back So to... I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, you went to something called underwater swimming school. Yeah. Can you, you tell me what that entailed? How that's, long were you there? That's, well, I, back then it was about three months in Key West, Florida. You went down there and learned how to run and thump and bump and... Uh, Scuba diving and you know underwater swimming. Mm -hmm. Did uh, you go down very deep? Oh, about a hundred, about maximum about normal dives about to a hundred feet. You know, and you learn how to lock in and lock out of a submarine and all that. Uh, what is locking in and locking out of a submarine? Well, at then the only uh, combat submarine they had for troop care was the the uh, I can't even name anymore. Uh, Grayback. It was an old Regulus. Submarine that they used to use fire missiles on. Well, they take the, all that missiles out of the can, and you got in the can, and they submerged. And then when you got down there, they equalized the pressure, flooded the can, popped the hatch, and up you came. Mm -hmm. And so, then could they drain the water out of? Oh it yeah. When you well, no, in? you if you flew if you got back in, so you get picked off by a rubber boat or you'd go ashore. But if you came back and you you know swim into the can, they drain the water out, equalize pressure, and then they. Oh, the hatch into the boat and down you went. Mm -hmm. So, was all this training like really new to you? Because oh, you, that was yeah. I mean, you had been in a, in living in a monastery. How did that life compare to military life? Uh, a little more rugged, you know. I mean, a little more. Uh, how do you say? Which was uh, the the military? I mean, the monastery. You know, you didn't say. He didn't talk, you know. I mean, the 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 euphemism that God can't talk to you if you're talking to somebody else in the military. Language got a little rougher. The day I left the monastery, uh, Father Superior said, "Okay, Tom, you're leaving." He says, "When you leave, you're gone. You're always welcome back." But he says, "When you're out of here, you're not a Catholic monk anymore. I mean, you're Catholic, but he's not a monk." He said to me, "In Rome, do as the Romans do, but don't roam as much as the Romans." Whereas don't go off the deep end, and uh, and that kind of stood with me. So then, uh, but it was rugged. I mean, there's a lot of foul words and uh, jokes, and uh, I mean, it was just a whole different life. But very good, uh, very good uh, camaraderie, very good friendships. Uh, I mean, guys mess with one because they liked it. You know, see, you know, you play jokes with one another because you hated one another, just to see if you out, you know, out mess one another. Mm -hmm.
So a lot of banter. Yeah. Back and forth. Um, um, let's see. So how would you describe? I've read a lot in your in what your narrative that you wrote for that student. Yeah. Um, about how you felt about national sentiment and how it changed during the war. Um, how would you say we got involved in Vietnam? Um, how do we, you know, I, I, those were the times of John F. Kennedy and not, you know, what you can do for your country, what the country, you know, what you, you know, what your what you can do, what the country can do for you. Um, a lot of patriotism, you know, I mean, you're, this is what you did, you're, you guys did it. They said, we go there, you go there, you know, there was no protest, no thoughts, you know. That was just the way the military was, you know, you go and you do, but you had your friends. I mean, in these groups of people you went with, I mean, these were deep friendships, which today you still keep in contact with some of us, you know. Um, it was an adventure, kind of. Um, it was kind of, there's a lot of one-upmanship, just, if you can do it, I can do it better, or you can do it worse, I can do it worse, you know, those type of things. So deep bonding. Um, when I went in country the first time, I was with re, uh, reconnaissance but battalion, not force recon battalion. And, um, you know, you had to prove yourself. You're the new guy, the greenie. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of, you know, see if you can match up. You know, can you do this, can you do that? If you was there hazing? Not really. I mean, it, 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 nowadays they might call it, but those days it was just part of it, you know. You, you did it. Uh, so you, you got out there and you proved yourself. Then I got dinged and shot. Then I went out to the hospital ship. They patched me up. But because I spoke Vietnamese and had all this training, they said, we're going to keep you here. You know. So I had a limited profile from the medical people. So they sent me ashore to the Marine Air Wing, a helicopter squadron, Marine Air Group 16. And I got out there and I was supposed to be the civic action corpsman for the wing. In other words, and this was stationed, they were stationed at Marble Mountain? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, they worked out of Marble. So uh, that was my job there was to take care of the perimeter uh, villages. And there was an intel aspect of that too, because as you went to these villages, you kind of see what was going on. You know, if you gained the trust of the people, they would tell you, hey, look, at, they're here, they're there, they're going to come over here tonight. Uh, so you were in the north of South Vietnam yeah. at this point. And that was. Yeah, the north of South Vietnam. First, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the first, first Corps. First yeah. Okay. Um, so I would imagine there would be more action there. Oh yeah, there was, yeah. Can you tell me what it was like to go off to these villages? Were um, you with a group of other men? Oh yeah, usually a couple, you know, four or five or, you know, we'd go out there. The Vietnamese, in, in these villages they had a, uh, what they called CAP platoons, combined action platoons of Americans and Vietnamese. And I'd go out there and hold sick call and, uh, you know, they'd say, okay, the Americans here, and we, and we're not, it was lumps and bumps, sneezes, wheezes, nothing really major. But if you saw something major, sometimes you could bring it in for the Navy hospital to look at something like a cleft palate or a broken arm. You know, but mostly it was just a. Lump. What about delivering babies? Who did that? Not there. I, mean, I not at that point, I didn't. Um, so you did that every day, and then I used to fly medevac. You're on a, a rotating schedule. Or uh, you'd have to sit on the flight line for a day and fly, you know, whenever the bell went off, 
he jumped in a helicopter and flew someplace and picked up the wounded or whatever he had to do. Sometimes dead bodies, sometimes alive. What was that? How did that feel at first? Was it scary? To oh, him? yeah. Yeah. We had a, um, you, know, you had your helmet and your horse, your, and I was a lot lighter than you had this, what they call chicken vest, big armor plate. And you had a chicken plate, and I could get my little butt over there because, you know, it was just metal. I mean, you had a door there, it was made out of a magnesium, and, you know, but you hid behind the door. And you got your butt over this little plate, you know, and was hoping the bullets came this way. If they came that way, well, you, you, you're done. Yeah, well, not done, but you got hit, you know. Um, so, you know, the, the, the thing there was you got in the helicopter, and two Marine officers got there and drove you out there. And all those guys had the real, uh, I mean, you got in, you're committed, you know. But when, when they took up, they're sitting up way up uh, on the top of the helicopter. These are 34s. Uh, and they drove you in there and drove you out of there, you know. I mean, I'm just allowed for the ride. They're the ones that had to really say, oh, we're going in. And, and they were up about 10, 15 feet above the ground, above me. Well, not above me, but they're up there and I'm under here. And and they they saw what they were getting in. They drove us in there. They got out, ran, caught the patients. Hauled them in, did what you can, and got out of their back, and then you did it again a couple of times. So you, did you take all the patients to the base, or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Generally, there, there, the, the, the idea was you'd pick them up in the field and bring them back to the battalion aid okay. station, but after a while, they just jumped over the BAS and went back to Navy. Uh, the, the, the care went from the corpsman, without, forget the helicopter, the corpsman, the battalion A station, the battalion A station, the regimental A station, and then back to a, a fixed hospital like, and the naval support activity hospital, the Dang, or third field hospital, and they were there, but now, then they said, heck with this, let's pick them up and just roll them right on back. Okay. Um, so you picked them up and took them back to the hospital and went back again. So how long did it take for that to change from being, like what you were just saying about? By the time I got there, they were pretty much doing that. There was none of this echelon, it was just, it was just pick them up, school. bring them back, yeah, yeah. take care of them. Um, so did you? Can I jump in and ask a question? Yes. Along that line. Were you doing any um, um, crew or pilot recovery? Uh, once in a while, we, we picked up, when that time, a couple of Air America guys we picked up a couple of times. Air America was another uh, airline, uh, civilian, well, CIA really, but we picked them up. We never got, these were 34s, UH, they weren't real long range. They're pretty cumbersome, and uh, but we did go pick up pilots uh, twice in my well, with Air America. Can you talk about those times when you picked them up? Um, you had air cover sometimes, F4s, or uh, always you'd check in there, there'd be an air, uh, O1 bird dog, which is a little spotter plane, he'd be around. And then you'd see whatever air cover you had to prep the area, you know, see what you're going, and then you had a playmate with you. Uh, it always was through helicopters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you'd go down and get him out of there, and then he'd be covered. Or he might be swooping over you, firing his machine gun, trying to suppress the fire. We had suppressed the fire, too. The Marine Corps never got into unarmed helicopters. They always went armed. I was in the first Marine helicopter that had red crosses on it with lights. And that was... How was that different? Yeah. Well, you go in at night and you're lit up like a 
I gotta be careful. Go for it. <laughs> no, you lit up like a tree, you know, Christmas tree, you know, and I mean, the bad guy says, oh, okay, you know, Americans really helped me out. I go, shoot, I know, I don't have to look at babies over here. But so we got Swiss cheese, uh, old Colonel Tweedies, and he called me and said, we're going finite with a special shopper. And I go, okay, I'll let Colonel call. So we, we did it and uh, swooped in there and uh, we got nailed. Uh, nailed but good. Uh, but nobody got hurt, you know. But they shot the, the Red Crosses were on the table with lights and a, uh, it was a snap on uh, canvas panel, you know, it was, it was pretty tight and it was lit up. So we took most shots back there. So we did that twice and got, they really nailed us. Nobody got hurt, we didn't get shot down. Colonel went back and says, you know, how was this crap? He says, the wing wants to fly this, they can fly it. We're going to fly it with lights on red drops and no more. So, because, I mean, it was just, that's, I mean, they look like, you know, you know it's war. I mean, there's there's the uh, Geneva Convention on, but they didn't, they, you know, they, they, it's, it's war. But the old man says, we ain't doing that and stuff no more. So you said it was something about the Geneva Convention? Yeah. What about it? Well, Red Cross is not supposed to shoot the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Medics are supposed to have Red Cross armbands and not get shot at. Uh, but NVA uh, didn't know that. Oh, they knew it well. And and like the uh, big litter, the army litter, you know, if you, they saw that, shoot the, shoot the guy at the litter, you know. Uh, that we I've seen documents in Vietnamese that they wrote about, the, you know, their, their town their indoctrination. The NVA indoctrination book says, you know, shoot the, shoot the, uh, right the radio, look for the radio men. Look for the medic and look for the guy in the litter. So, so you were in just as much danger. Oh, if yeah. Not more. Yeah. Not a lot more, but yeah. But you were in plenty of danger. Um, so, jumping back, when you first got sent to Vietnam in the military, how did you feel about going back? I mean, you'd already been there. Um, what did you expect? I wanted to go back because I felt like, you know, I, I quit the monastery. I quit what I want. I want to help people. Uh, I want to go back, uh, but when I got there, it was all. It was much. It was much different. You know, I mean, yeah, I'm thinking this way, this way now, this way. When I left uh, Camp Pendleton, you know, I was thinking, you know, I'm a. There was a lot of you know. Let's kill the bastard. You know, uh, uh, of course, medics were supposed to, but we all said, you know, you know, kill them before they kill us. Killing them is preventive medicine. The joke was, if you're a preventive medicine technician, which is you know, uh, rats and uh, sanitation. Uh, we said, I'm a pro that I'm going to kill them before they kill my guys. Just to be clear about rats, you mean like men who went into holes and stuff? No, no, no. Or... A preventive medicine technician in the Navy is a guy who looks for the cleanliness of the galleys, the ships, birthing spaces, where the guys live. When I say to rats, you know, you're, you're taught how to, you know, treat for rat poison, you know, and take care of that health. So we say, oh, we're all preventive medicine, and we're going to kill the rats before they kill us. Ah. Not, like, I mean, Bureau, the Bureau of Medicine Surgery and the Navy Medicine didn't like that, but that was a general thought. You know, I'm going to get out there, I'm going to kill the bastards before they kill my guys. I mean, that was patriotism yeah. at the time. Yeah. Um, what year was it when you first deployed? It was 1966? Yeah, yeah. Fall, spring? Spring, spring, spring? of 66. So, can you tell me about when you were wounded the first time? Um, what 
What day was it? I don't know what was what the day. weather like? It was hot. It was uh It was just the day, you know, you're out there and you're flying around and you got, uh, we're going into a zone and, uh, you know, you're thinking one way and all of a sudden it's the whole sky. I, I was sitting uh, here and I'd moved up forward because it was cold, cold being around. I, uh, so there was a big engine, 16-cylinder right cycle engine. Put off a lot of heat, so I went and laid on the bulkhead just to get warm. Uh, and got shot so it wasn't real bad you know just to the meat but uh in the knee meat yeah in the arm and uh, just patched it up and uh and do what i had to do and we did our medevac went back and went to the hospital and they gave me a tetanus shot and i cleaned it out and uh, went back to flying uh, it scared the hell out of me but you know you found out that it hurts it's <laughs> not invincible was it numb at first or? yeah yeah, yeah. um and then I so, didn't realize until the guy said, Doc, you got hit. So. Was that when you were transferred to MAG? No, no, that was back, no. When I was in recon, all the first, yeah, let's go back. That's when I got shot in the shrapnel in the butt. So I uh, went to the hospital ship, passed me out, went back to, back to uh, MAG-16, and then uh, the second time. And what did you do there? At MAG-16? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when you checked in, they said, you're going to be a flight corpsman. But, Doc, we also want you, because you have Vietnamese and understand the people, we want you to be the civic action corpsman, which is a bill in the wing at, at 16. They had a area that they were responsible for, so I started holding sick call in the villages uh, right outside of Marble, at Marble, at Marble, the Marble Mountain itself. Mm-hmm. And then um, did that. And that was when you would do... The yeah. trips. Back. Yeah. So by day you'd be flying you know, or night. You, when you weren't flying, you're out in the village. Um, kind of flip flopped. You didn't fly every day. I mean, you had a rotation of schedule. Did you communicate with your family during this time? Yeah, my, I wrote a home letters and I did. Mm-hmm. Calling back, there was a real nightmare. Uh, you went down to the Mars station and you sat there over and over, you know. Hey, Dad, how are you? Over. <laughs> so could uh, you, you couldn't have much of a conversation. No, really. back then it was, um, the big thing was uh, sending tapes. Uh, you know, a little, you make a tape instead of tape. Because the Mars station was, just, it was, uh, it was catch as catch can. It was, they did the best, but I mean, sometimes you could talk and so you, you always had to, you know, you get down and say over, over, you know. Kate over, you know, Tom over, you know, so that was kind of, and they had bad communication. It was really very hard. We did it because you got to hear the voice of somebody at home. Uh, but but then we all went to tapes, and that was kind of where it went. Did, who were your friends during this time? The guys I flew with, I'm still friends with them. Uh, there's a couple, uh, one, my one pilot, Roger Herman, he and I have been friends for years. Uh, Frenchie uh, LaFontaine, we, we still talk. They just had a reunion down in Florida. I'll have to send you the tape. Okay. Uh, I, I couldn't go, but uh, they uh, made a tape and sent it to me. And called on the phone and said a lot of things. 
was so very We Karen and I have been to a couple of reunions when I could travel, uh, but we still keep in touch. Good. Um, did you ever get sent back for R and R places? Yeah, went once. Uh, went to Bangkok, Thailand. You know. How long? I think it was five days. Got drunk. Uh, there's a guy, a green beret buddy of mine. He and I went together. We got drunk. It's long before I knew Karen. You know, <laughs> we got drunk and uh, he, I passed out on the plane. He passed off, get me out of the plane. We woke up in the dang hospital because we just drank too much. You know, that was the the Rome part of the Romans. You know, and uh, the colonel comes to us. He says, "Okay, you two bastards, you got you got R." You got the recreation, now you're getting the rest, and as long as I'm CEO of this outfit, you're never going to get either again. So he made an example of it. So no more, you know, don't be exuberant. Go and have some fun, but come back ready to go. And I wasn't ready to go. It took about a week before I was ready to go. You probably hadn't partied much because you were in the monastery. Yeah. So you didn't know your limits? <laughs> no, I found out my limits. Yeah. Since I, I got shot in the city, he said, I haven't drank. I don't drink. You can talk to me. That. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do it. My skipper reminded me that it was called rest and relaxation, yeah. relaxation not yeah. recreation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I got one guy. I got the other, but never the two again. He said, that's it. That's over you two guys. What, do you, what, what most impressed you about the Vietnamese that you took care of? They're grateful. Uh, they didn't have I me. Mean, the people I was dealing with, uh, they they're very poor people. Uh, at, at marble. They, they were they were marble cutters for the most part. They lived right. They lived. The bad guys were in, among them. You know, the, the NDA, the VC. Marble Mount was a uh, right off the air base. There was a huge uh, about three spires of marble. Just, Inside one of them is a, uh, they carved a Buddha statue probably bigger than this building. Uh, but uh, it had different levels. The, the Marines had a, uh, a sniper uh, observation post on top, and yet the Viet Cong were underneath them. They, they, they hid in caves in there. Uh, I mean, it, it was a, this a lot. You know, who was a bad guy, who was a good guy? Um, I spent enough time with them that I could recognize who my villagers were. I started to understand dialects and, the, and the, looking at their skin and the way they, because uh, my people were rough uh, marble cutters and rice paddy. We used to call them rice paddy daddies. But uh, I mean, they're, they're, and these other people saying, oh, you know, he don't belong here. You just by looking at his feet and his hands. Um, How could you tell? The roughness of their skin, the way they acted. Uh, I've got one, uh, later on I was in another village, uh, there's a, uh, I think he was CBS reporter named Don Webster, and he's sitting there talking to me, and he says, and the Viet Cong don't come here no more. And I, I got the thing at home, and right behind him walks this guy, and walks out of the film, you know, I didn't know, we didn't know who he was, he just walked through, you know, it was a... a there was a market, so it could have been anybody. Uh, about two weeks later, the village was attacked, and he was one of the attackers. You know, so it was right there where Don was. You know, he just walked right by, right through the film. He's in the film. 
you know, we're saying with the vehicle, don't come here no more. And the guy walked right behind Don, Don Webster. How did you feel about the, did you know much about the way that the media was portraying the war while you were in Vietnam? I didn't like him. I mean, sensationalism sells newspapers, you know. The Vietnamese uh, did something good and it wasn't reported. They did something bad or two Americans, or Americans had some interactions with drunk or whatever. You know, it was all the news, but were the good part or the good things, you just never heard about it. It didn't sell. Did it sell at first and change over time? Not when I was there, it was always sensation. Do this, do that, uh, and and I learned too. Uh, you know, you have to learn how to live with them. Uh, I had a little boy came in with a dressing. I put his dressing on. He'd cut his foot and then okay, go home, take it dry. And every day he came back and was wet, and I got mad at him. You know, and finally uh, this Vietnamese nurse uh, said. Let's follow him home. Well, he had to walk through the water to get home. You know, he couldn't keep it dry. And you just have to learn, you know, think like them in the situations they're in. Did you ever come into contact with uh, Eastern medicine practices? Like, you know, like Chinese medicine? or? Yeah, um, I broke my toe uh, in this uh, Vietnamese mountain yard. Uh, I mean, it hurt. I mean, we're, 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 out, we're out in the... We're out there, and uh, there's no helicopter, so he says, you got to walk out. So he took some, he took his helmet, found some roots, 